Father, we are thankful to be here and to be saved today. We know that our salvation did not come cheap. We know that your son came and he lived a perfect life, but he did that so that he could be a perfect sacrifice for us. And he died on that cross, took our sin. We may not understand all of it now, but we will when we see him face to face. Your word promises that, that we will see him face to face one day. We would pray that you would help us, help us to live in light of the gospel today because of what it's done in our life. Lord, we would pray that you'd help us to love in such a way that the world takes notice because we know that your word says that they will know us by our love for one another. That's why I pray that we're found um, doing good for one another. God, we pray that you'd help us uh, to hear from your word today. Help us to, to have our ears open. Help us not to close off something that might be hard or difficult to hear or listen to, but help us to listen to it because we know that you are perfect in all the things that you say and do. We pray that you'd help us now. I pray that you give uh, Pastor Matt strength, clarity of thought, passion this morning. In Christ's name, amen. 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 Thank you, AJ, and the rest of the team. It's a wonderful time of worship. Amen. What a great morning. I don't know if you, uh, you know, as you guys saw the email from Pastor Justin, I, I feel like I've got, to, I've got to address this, right? So the tumor came off his back last Wednesday. Uh, no nerve damage, praise God, right? And so then in the midst of that, he sent off an email. If you haven't heard this, the prayer was that it wasn't cancerous, but it was, okay? So it's not the same kind of cancer that he had in his stomach, but it is, it, the, the tumor was cancerous. So at this point, they believe they've got it all, and that's an answer to your prayers. We've been praying, right? And so now in the midst of that, you know, the, the journey continues. Now they'll, now they'll start figuring out what to do next. But he's home, he's healing, got to spend some time with him on Wednesday. He didn't call me one name the entire time. I felt really good about that. <laughs> he's, he's a spunky one. We're coming off of Easter. People got saved. People got saved. People came forward, Right? And, and so in the midst of that, now you make disciples. They come to believe on Christ, you make disciples. And Pete, wonderful job with that. And the rest of the team, all of you that were a part of that, wonderful job. <laughs> wonderful job presenting the gospel. Look at your notes with me. On the front of your notes, it says, coming together right after our celebration of Christ rising from the dead, today's passage has much to do with the bodily resurrection of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. In this regard, Andrew Murray writes, as we abide in him as our redemption, the more shall we experience even here of the powers of the world to come. As our communion with him becomes more intimate and intense, and we let the Holy Spirit reveal him to us in his heavenly glory, the more we realize how the life in us is the life of the one who sits upon the throne in heaven. We feel the power of an endless life working in us. We taste the eternal life. We have the foretaste of the eternal glory. The soul is delivered from all fear of death. The resurrection of the body is no longer a barren doctrine, but a living expectation. Amen? Amen? Amen. And we can, we, we can come in a lot of different ways this morning, but the Lord wants that for us. 
Today, April 8th, 2018, as we engage our text in Luke, Jesus wants us to understand that God is the God of the living. The only way to have complete confidence in that truth is to listen to his voice about eternity's reality above finite thinking. One of the beauties of being at Salem Heights Church since 1988, got saved late 1988, came to know Christ personally in 1977, coming out of addiction, coming out of darkness. We land here, and men invested in myself, women invested in Lori, and, and to come down the timeline now, one of the beauties that, that, that has been a part of what our existence has been is to watch lives transformed to see people literally transferred from darkness to light, or to see people who thought they were walking in light in their religion figure it out, and all of a sudden they're walking in true light because their religion wasn't light, it was all about self. We got to see the lost become kind. People who were once hostile become gentle. Once flawed in their approach to Scripture, they progressively have the mind of Christ. I really love butterflies. You guys like butterflies? <laughs> I do. I like them. Look at that. You know, uh, I worked on this word all week. You see there the chrysalis, right? You know, you, you think about a butterfly, and we look at a picture like that, and where they come from is amazing, isn't it? A worm-like creature crawls along on this earth, fattening itself on that which it did not plant or cultivate or influence in any positive way. It uses it for its own benefit. Really not understanding much about anything in its little worm mind, a caterpillar can only see its direct surroundings and eventually ends up upside down, trapped in something it made. A chrysalis. It struggles in its surroundings. A real wrestling goes on to emerge into a fantastic being, a being that little children and adults alike wonder over. It's beautiful. It's in a new state. It's miraculous, really. What we once looked at all of a sudden is something completely different. Metamorphosis. When it's complete, it's a beautiful thing. And we're not complete until we see Jesus. Here's a question. Do you think the caterpillar knows what it will become prior to that dark struggle in the chrysalis? Or is it going through its life only being able to see what's really directly surrounded about it and then it, it's hanging upside down, darkened, and it's beginning to change and it really doesn't understand completely what's going on? Turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 20. We're going to read this together. You hear that noise? That's a beautiful noise. People's Bibles, the pages are turning. People's phones, clicking. <laughs> Chapter 20, verse 27. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, and they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if... A man's brother dies having a wife, and he is childless. His brother should marry the wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and he died childless. 
and the second and the third married her, and in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to obtain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore, because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But the dead are raised. Even Moses showed it in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Let's pray together. Father, as we just read your word, you promise that will not come back void. It will always accomplish what you sent it forth to do. Every mind that engaged the word of, of your son, every mind that engaged what the Spirit of God wrote through Luke, just now, as we engaged it, you're going to do a work in us, and we want it. We want to be transformed. We want to change. I pray for every person in this room, every soul that matters to you. You know them, what's firing in their minds right now. You know if they don't truly know you yet. And you know if they know you and exactly where they sit in, in the midst of that. Have your way with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We began teaching through the book of Luke. And at the very beginning, we said that we believe that Luke is writing to a high priest, a Sadducee, Theophilus. Now, we're not dogmatic about this. It could could be that he was writing to someone else or a group of people, but it sure makes sense that he was writing to the very next high priest after Caiaphas, Theophilus. Theophilus, um, according to Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews, was a member of the wealthiest and most influential Jewish family. The son of Annas, and, and many of you have seen him in the four Gospels, his name shows up as a previous high priest. He had four brothers, all of whom became high priest. His brother-in-law was Josephus Caiaphas. You've heard his name if you've read the Gospels. So Theophilus would have been related to Caiaphas through marriage. And, and, and in the midst of these things, Caiaphas, as we read the Gospels, the, was the one who did the mock trial with Jesus and actually sentenced him to death, right? He needed to die. It would have been Caiaphas's servant, by the way, as they came to, the, in that dark night, when they came to arrest Jesus, the high priest's servant. Remember Peter, defending Jesus, wanted to cleave him between the eyes and missed, took off his ear, and Jesus put Caiaphas's servant's ear back on and said, no, not this way. <laughs> as we think about this, in the midst of these things, the Sadducees have shown up in our text as a group. Before, it was the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. It just lumped everybody together, the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. Everybody was lumped together. And as Jesus had rode into Jerusalem, do you remember, he, he was met with great fanfare. They were excited. People were excited that he showed up. 
he immediately then, in this Passion Week, went to the temple. And you remember what he did? He drove out those who were selling, making money. He said, you've turned my house into a robber's den, my father's house into a robber's den. Do you know who did that? Do you know who ran that? The Sadducees. The Sadducees ran that. Then what ends up happening is the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they all come to him, and in order to try to trap him, as you recall, they asked him, by what authority do you do these things? Hoping that he would say God, hoping that he would say he was the Messiah, so they could put him to death. But he asked them a question. Was John's baptism from heaven or from men? And they couldn't answer it. They said, we do not know. He relegated them to agnostics in that moment. He turned it on them that quickly. Well, they came back again because they still wanted him dead, and they figured, well, we didn't pull that off. So they came and they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? He said, show me a coin. Well, whose likeness is on the coin? Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and to God that which is God. Mm, missed again. <laughs> Not today. But now what happens is these, these men show up they're not going to ask a question that could get him killed because obviously that if, you, if he had said, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, they're going to run to Caesar and say, hey, he doesn't want you to pay taxes. Oh, kill him. But in this case, they've done that part. Now the Sadducees are showing up with a question to try to make him look stupid. When they're, when they're showing up, they're showing up believing that he is just a Galilean country bumpkin. Theophilus would have been of a family that came from the line of Zadok, the priest that David put on the throne, that Solomon put on the throne. The Sadducees believed they were of royal stuff. They were the upper crust. That They were wealthy. They were the elite. And now as a group alone, they showed up to Jesus to say, you're nothing. And we're going to prove it by asking you a question. And when you give us the answer, we're going to make you look stupid. So what was wrong with the Sadducees? Well, they were philosophical, theological materialists. Their theology came exclusively from the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't read the whole Old Testament. They only read the first five books, the writings of Moses. That's what they believed was truth. That's where they stayed. The Pentateuch. Outside of that, they cared very little for the scriptures. They did not believe in an afterlife. They did not believe in the supernatural or miracles. They did not believe in angels or anything like that. They were heartless compromisers. So they were able to accept Roman rule with no problem because they believed in the status quo. If you will let us stay in power within the temple and continue doing what we do, then we are fine with you being over us to the Romans. Now, the Pharisees weren't like that. But the Sadducees were. And if you came in to rock their boat, they would be vicious in their response to you, seeking you to die. Caiaphas was a Sadducee who ran the mock trial of Jesus. The Pharisees believed that their religious human traditions were, important as, were as important as Scripture. The Sadducees did not as they only believed in the Moses writings. The Pharisees believed in an after-death or afterlife, the resurrection, angels and miracles. The Sadducees did not believe any of it. John MacArthur writes this of them. 
The Pharisees were ritualists, the Sadducees were rationalists. The Pharisees were legalists, the Sadducees were liberals. The Pharisees were separatists, the Sadducees were political opportunists. They really did not know God engaging life with human thinking. In their power, they put to death the Messiah. They drove that bus. Oftentimes we'll think of the Pharisees being the ones that did it. They were a part of it, yes. The Sadducees were the high priests. The Sadducees were the chief leadership. And that's who's showing up to Jesus here. In John eleven forty seven through 53, it says this. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned to kill him. They had religion without relationship using scripture to support self-centered living even there caiaphas is saying something he doesn't even really realize is prophetic but in order to for them to stay in power he reasoned you are all fools as he's speaking to the pharisees and even the rest of the council the sanhedrin we just have to kill one man in order for our nation to stay a nation to be safe prophetic Jesus was going to die on his terms for the sins of the world. If you'll turn back with me to Deuteronomy, the story that the Sadducees bring to Jesus in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It is the custom of deliberate marriage. It existed long before the, Moses wrote this, by the way. The Hebrews used this to preserve bloodlines, to preserve inheritances, to preserve land rights, to keep a family and their name from dying out. And so in chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, this is what the Sadducees are bringing to Jesus. When brothers live together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside of the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of the husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This is when they bring up Moses. Moses gave us this. They're bringing up those two verses of the Old Testament. And it certainly did have a place in Israel because without that, they literally could have whole family lines die off if they did not do this. Uh, their, their heritage, their lineage was very important to them. 
in, in the midst of these things, they're bringing an argument that's ridiculous, though, right? Here's, here's what uh, the New Testament scholar William Hendrickson says about this. It is clear, of course, that their entire representation was absurd. It was atrociously unfair. For Jesus, though believing in the doctrine of physical resurrection, did not believe that the state of marriage would continue after the resurrection. What the opponents were doing, therefore, was setting up a man of straw to be bowled down very rapidly. These little caterpillar men came to Jesus with a theologically brainless question because they've only looked at five books of the Bible and they haven't looked at the whole. They, they come to him with a straw man argument. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Now, the picture that I had here for you was that. It's a straw man. It's, it's mindless. But, but here's the point of the straw man. They're bringing up an argument Jesus wasn't even talking about. They're bringing up an argument, assuming something of Jesus. And so when he would answer, they had already set up a straw man to knock down whatever answer he would give them very quickly and make him look foolish. Because obviously she can't, because they don't believe in the resurrection, and they're trying to mock the fact that there would be a, a resurrection, she can't have seven husbands in heaven. That's impossible. And so since there is no resurrection, we're going to lay out an argument for you that no matter what you say, we're going to come back and knock it down. We're going to knock it down quickly because we're brilliant, right? Now they're speaking to God, and he knows the whole Bible because he wrote it. If you turn over your bulletin to the very backside, let's read Matthew's account of this very same interaction. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, having no children left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? They all had married her. Jesus answered and said to them, now catch this, this is just a little different than what Luke had pro proclaimed. You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the what? Power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. They had desired to make Jesus look foolish. You are mistaken, he says, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. Here's something that comes up in every conversation I've had as people have been saying, so you're preaching this week? Yeah, well, where are you preaching? And I describe where I'm preaching from. And in every conversation I've had, something's come up. There's been a question in the room. And it wasn't about the resurrection in that sense, as far as like just assuring us of the resurrection. 
every time, and I've had some very long conversations about this, people brought up, well, about being married in heaven. Like, hope explain that to me. Because this, for some of us in this room right now, that hurts, right? The question in the room can be a painful question because we actually have had loved ones that have gone off yonder. They believed, and we're looking forward to being reunited with them. Amen? I'd like to read for you something that Kent Hughes wrote. He, uh, he also is a Bible scholar and had a, a commentary on Luke. He says this, the fact that there is no marriage after the resurrection may be good news to some. <laughs> but if you are in love with your spouse and happy as I am, it seems sad. But the good news is we will love each other more. We will be our sinless, perfected selves at our ultimate best. There's no death in that age. Marriage and procreation are of primary necessity in the mortal life, the earthly life, so human life can go on. But since there is no death in heaven, marriage will be superseded. The quality of life is such in the coming age that death cannot touch it. No funeral now will ever be heard in heaven. There will be no gray hairs on the heads of immortals. Jesus says three times about the immortality of the resurrection, these things. They are like angels. They are God's children. They are children of the resurrection. These phrases are mutually descriptive of the eternal state of the redeemed. Each phrase describes the other. The first phrase, they are like angels, is particularly revealing because it teaches us by comparison. We will be like the angels in beauty and strength. Our bodies will have power, powers of which we now have no conception. We will have an enlarged mental capacity and a greater spiritual range. We will have been sown in weakness, but we will be raised in power, 1 Corinthians 15, 43 says. Like the angels, our character will be faultless. The angels perfectly do God's will. We now pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but there we will always do his will. There we will have no unrighteous desires, no covetous cravings, no proud thoughts, no depressions of spirit, no poles of self-will, no inclinations to sin or habitual sins that afflict us as so much will finally be gone. Like angels, we will perpetually worship God. They will cast their crowns before him. Cherubim and seraphim feel or veil their faces, but they all sing, and we will have even more than they to sing about because we have been redeemed. To be like angels is to be like God's children and the children of the resurrection. Now that's good news. In the midst of these things, what can end up happening as we see statements like that, it can still hurt. It can still cause a struggle. The reality is if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that he died for all of your sins, every single one of them, even tomorrow's, leading all the way up to the day you breathe your final breath. And he, and he bore that on the cross, taking the wrath that you deserve, that I deserve. And he cried out, it is finished for you. And you've believed now that that's true. We still have struggle. True? That little caterpillar. 
There's a picture there of someone who's been lost, trapped in darkness of their own making, and yet the gospel shows up and they begin to struggle their way out into becoming something that is absolutely beautiful. But there's another picture there. You believed. And we're still in the midst of a cocoon struggling to then be burst forth in a resurrected, glorified body. The redemption of our bodies. To see things the way they really are outside of this place. And so to struggle with the loved ones that have gone off to be with Jesus, whether that's a spouse or a parent or a child or friends, you name it, that would be human. And he says, I'll take you all the way there. And when you come out and all of a sudden you're saying, I'm something completely different, and you see your loved one looking at Jesus, and your eyes fixate on him, and you now see it the way it really is, all of your fears, all of your pain, all of your struggles, be gone. We can look forward to that. We can be mistaken because we don't understand the scriptures nor the power of God. If you put yourself in Theophilus' sandals as he's reading this, and as you read Luke, and we've been reading through Luke, it's interesting, and one of the reasons we believe this is written to Theophilus is there's such an emphasis on miracles. There's an emphasis on angels showing up. Did you catch that at the beginning of the book? There's an emphasis here on the resurrection. All things that Sadducees did not believe in. And as you read the other gospel accounts, Luke really emphasizes some things that would really con convince a Sadducee, if he's already been saved, that what you believed in is absolutely true, or if he's that caterpillar struggling out of that cocoon, you need to pop out here. This is awesome. In any case, as Theophilus is reading this, if we put ourselves in his shoes, much of what he's reading about is about himself. He would have had to ignore an ear being put back on his brother-in-law's servant's ear, a head. Now think about that. He's part of this family. He's going to remember these things. All of the Old Testament scripture outside of the Pentateuch spoke of God's miracles to men. And even as you go back, you see that Jesus is bringing up Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. He brings up maybe the most famous verse, passage, with regards to the first five books of the Bible, Moses at the burning bush. And he does it on purpose because he's the master teacher. They've brought up to him, we only believe in these five books, we don't believe in anything supernatural, and we don't believe in the resurrection, and we're going to make you look stupid. And he says, well, Moses wrote of the resurrection. What? <laughs> he is the God of Abraham. I am. He is the God of Isaac. I am. He is the God of Jacob. I am. It's an emphatic present tense. Now, they're alive. They're alive. You don't know the scriptures nor the power of God because you've stayed in one spot in the scriptures for too long. And here's something interesting. Psalm 90 was written by Moses. They should have at least gone to the Psalms. Moses wrote one. As for the days of our life, 
they contain 70 years, or due to strength, 80. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone, and we fly away. Look at that. Look at that progression. Bunch of little caterpillars. <laughs> Progressing to a chrysalis. He is focusing on just one part of the Bible, left them looking foolish. Scripture helps interpret Scripture. We need to learn that in our day and age too. If we'll read the whole of Scripture, it will help us understand the rest of Scripture. But if we focus on one thing, we may be mistaken, not understanding the power of God. The I am is not the God of the dead, but of the living. To enter into the tomb... Jesus bursts forth in three days, and it shall be for us. You know that I've heard this comment when I first got saved. I was so excited about Christ. I was sitting at the dinner table with a bunch of folks, and we were talking about ministry and my desire to leave making pizza and getting into full-time ministry. I really wanted to. I just had it in me. I, I, I wanted to be in full-time ministry. I didn't know how to get there. Things were going pretty well in, in the pizza industry at that time, and I just didn't know what to do and how to make that happen. So I began to pray, and, 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 and those things unfolded, and, and I get to do this with you, and it's, and it's a great blessing. I think, I think back to those days, and I think about the struggle, not, not truly understanding what was really going on. Literally at night, late at night, I'd be, be pleading with God, God, I just don't feel like this is where I'm supposed to be. I don't feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing, but I didn't know how to get from this place to the next. That struggle goes on for all of us, amen? I mean, I don't, amen means may it be so, but it's true. The, the, the key in the midst of these things is that we understand Scripture and, and we understand the power of God. That we don't outthink His promises, but we grab a hold of those and cling to them tightly. And the resurrection is a promise. So what do you do with that? This whole series has been entitled, So What Do You Do With That? Because certain situations keep happening. Jesus keeps addressing people or groups of people, and he's, and he's working through things with them, and he wants us today in 2018 to come to grips with this passage. It means something for us too. Are you absolutely convinced that you will rise again? Do, have you known Jesus for so long that deep inside you're not sure? Does that make sense? Maybe I haven't been in the scriptures the way I, I should be in the scriptures, and so my confidence is waning because I've been kind of depending upon my little caterpillar mind. Or I'm hurting over what the resurrection could look like on the other side because I never want to get over the love I have for a family member. I'm struggling hard with, I don't want to like not love them the way I am supposed to love them. And really, that this is going to be this way? Yeah, it is. And when you come out of this existence and burst forth into the new, as you're wrestling now, God understands. He understands. Are you absolutely convinced you're going to rise again? 
Have you come here and you don't know Christ personally? And right now, you're trapped in your chrysalis? And God is calling to you and saying, if you will believe that I took care of your sin problem once and for all, the just for the unjust, I'll wash you and let you come into my presence. Will you believe? God wants to replace our human preconceived ideas about heaven with his truth. Any thoughts that we have with regards to this life in Christ as, as we're working our way towards heaven, he wants us to run to his word and not our finite thinking. He'll get us home. He'll do it. We must know God's word to have faith in his promises that produce the power of an endless life. One of our ladies in the office took the picture of the Bible for us. That's Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. It's open to there. He is the I am. It's him. And he is the God of Abraham, and he's the God of Isaac, and he's the God of Jacob. And insert your name if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the God of the living, not the dead. The caterpillar to the butterfly illustration works for all of this. For we don't, we don't know if Theophilus was saved or if this letter was written to a man who was trying to work through it. But the beginning of the book of Acts is also written to Theophilus, by the way. Luke does it again. In all of this, as we're considering the struggle that we may be facing, Romans 8, verses 18 through 25 says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together unto now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. And we feel the power of an endless life working in us. And we taste the eternal life. And we have the foretaste of the eternal glory. The soul is delivered from all fear of death. The resurrection of the body is no longer a barren doctrine, but a living expectation. Amen? If you come here today, and right now you're saying, but I am hurting. I'm going to come down here. My wife will be with me. I know Pete will stay. And others that are here that are leaders within this church can also come forward. And we will pray with you that this is where your heart and mind is running to. If you know Christ and you're hurting in some significant way with the struggle of what God's word says, but what your finite thinking takes you to, let's pray. But if you've come and you know right now, I have not placed my faith in Christ, and this sounds really good to me. 
and I feel the draw of the Father on my life, and I know right now he's calling me to believe this and to come into the family, will you come forward and we'll pray with you? This is so important. This is so important. All of Christianity hinges on the resurrection really happening. Because if Christ isn't raised, we're to be pitied. But he is raised. We just celebrated that. Let's pray together. Father, awesome God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for life and breath and existence. And right now in this room, there may be those trapped in darkness, groping, reaching out. You're right there. May they cling to you. And for us who know Christ, Lord, we could be hurting. There's things that right now you already know what they are. As we go to worship and as we go to prayer and the Spirit of God moves, may we have this deep, abiding sense of eternity within us, with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.